Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I'd like to start this morning by painting a picture, creating an image in your imagination. It's Sunday morning. The faithful have assembled in the company in the sanctuary, and light pours through the windows that are on the side of the building. Six windows to each side. One for each of the twelve apostles. They stand larger than life, depicted in stained glass. Below their feet is a shield, and on each shield is an emblem of their service to Christ, and on most of them also an emblem of the instrument of death. Visible rays of light flow through the windows on the eastern side of the building, bathing the congregation in reds and blues, greens and golden yellow. It's all saints day. But where are the saints? Too often, we look at the saints in the stained glass windows. The twelve apostles and many others, Polycarp and Phoebe, Augustine and the Cappadocian fathers, Basil the Great and the, the two Gregories, the one of Nicaea and the one of Nersansas, John Huss and Luther, great theologians, fathers of the church, and martyrs, witnesses to their faith. But when we look at the window, reverently at the window, we miss the message that's in our gospel lesson this morning. Where are the saints? We miss the image, the vision of the light shining through those stained glass saints, shining on the saints in the pews. The light of this world, Jesus Christ, shines his light of salvation on each and every one of us. Seeing the crowd, Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down and he taught his disciples, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The light streams through this first one up here, and it, it depicts Matthew, the very first evangelist. And under his feet is a shield that has a, a winged man on it. Or is it an angel? Well, it's, it's one of the four living creatures that Vicar read you about in our first reading that surround the throne of heaven. A man in a halberd, the spear that took his life. Matthew was a tax collector. He was a rich man in his former life, as we witnessed by the huge banquet that he gives after Jesus calls him. He's rich in goods, but in what sense is he also poor in spirit? To answer that question, let me tell you about another saint who is not pictured in stained glass, a saint whose body now rests in the grave, awaiting its reunion with its spirit that dwells among the saints of Revelation chapter 7. I'm talking about my, my sainted father. Wes, I don't think I ever called him that while he was still alive. Wes was a thoughtful and insightful theologian. He instilled in me a love of God's word. I recall one conversation we had. We were still living in Lombard. I was taking confirmation class, so it must have been 1967 or 68. And we were talking about some of the maladies of the day that was in the, the news of the day. I don't know, it might have been the race riots, the 
permeated that time or the growing revolt against the war in Vietnam. I really don't remember. Jim, he said, the root problem here is sin. Capital S, capital I, capital N. The poor in spirit are those who grasp that truth, just as my father had. The root evil, the root cause of evil and sickness and calamity in the world is not out there. No, it's, it's in here. The sin we inherited from our first parents. The poor in spirit grasp that not only as an objective fact, but as an aching in their bones. Psalm 34 refers to them as the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit. Sin is an aching darkness, an enveloping darkness that longs for the light of Christ. Matthew, not the stated last version, understood that as he followed Jesus, as he hid from the terror of the cross, along with the other eleven, locked in the rooms, but then especially when he heard that word in the upper room, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The light of Christ's blessing fell on him, as the prophet had foretold. For, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. The healing light from heaven, the forgiveness of sin wrought on the cross and declared from the open tomb, streamed down on him and dispersed the darkness. I remember the forgiveness extended to me by my father. Especially when I, when I really knew that I disappointed him. The darkness of my sin, scattered as the light of Christ's blessing, shone through this saint to me. Truly blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When the light of Christ shines upon them. There are two really important things I want you to, to hear and to take away this morning from the second clause in that first beatitude. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First, that, that little word is. Jesus does not say it will be, as if it's a future prophecy. He does not say theirs could be or it should be, as if they achieve a blessed state through being poor in spirit. No, we already are poor in spirit. But realizing our poverty of spirit, the light of Christ's blessing illuminates our darkened hearts, and the kingdom of heaven is ours. Even now, even in our sinful condition, 100% of the time between your baptism and the second coming of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is yours. But perhaps even more importantly, what is ours, this kingdom of heaven? What is it? Well, it's not the state of New Jersey, and it's not a land grant in Alaska. It's not some tropical island or any particular piece of property. As I've expressed on other occasions, the word we translate here as kingdom is actually a verbally based noun in the original Greek. It would be better translated as the kinging of heaven, if English had such a word. So what is the kinging of heaven? Gibbs suggests it is God's saving deeds now that the King has come down in Jesus. The reigning of Jesus as he heals the sick, feeds the hungry, binds up the brokenhearted, raises the dead, but chiefly in his reigning on the cross, in his dying and rising again, in his words on my lips, 
you are forgiven. His body and His blood on your lips, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. You are 100% sinner, poor in spirit, and at the same time, 100% saint in the light of Christ. As the sun rises a little bit higher, the light shifts and it catches our attention to another window a little farther down the pew. Its reds and greens bathe the young family that sits in the pew beside him. It's Bartholomew, or as John names him, Nathaniel. And under Nathaniel's feet is a shield, and in that shield is, is an open book. The book probably represents the, the church fathers had the, were of the opinion that, that Nathaniel was a trained scribe, that he was well-schooled in the Torah. And we get a sense of that when Philip brings Nathaniel to Jesus, and Jesus immediately takes him to Genesis, to the Old Testament, and the story of Jacob's ladder, and speaks about how it reveals the Son of Man. An open book, and on that book, a skinning knife. Nathaniel's witness cost him his skin. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When we hear the word meek, we think doormat. Someone easily walked on or ignored. Not hardly the image of Nathaniel in his bold challenge to Jesus. How did you know me? But to understand how we can connect Nathaniel to this third beatitude, we need to unpack the Greek word behind our meek. It occurs only four times in the New Testament, and three of them are in Matthew's Gospel. The other two times Matthew uses this word, he uses them to describe Jesus. Come to me, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then on Palm Sunday, quoting the prophet, he says, he is humble and mounted on a donkey. Not a doormat, but not exactly the temple cleansing Jesus either. To really understand the word as Jesus uses it, we must go back to the Old Testament, to the Greek translation of the Psalms in particular. Psalm 37, for example. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Or 34, my soul makes its boast in Yahweh. Let the humble hear and be glad. And finally, 76, when the heavens, from the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still, when God arose to establish justice to save all the humble of the earth. Meekness is to be God-dependent. To know that He is our strength and our confidence. Everything that we have and are comes from Him, not our own human ability. Nathaniel was God-dependent in his training in the Torah, and later in his work as an apostle. Surely he was God-dependent as his executioner began his work, and now his soul rejoices in the presence of the one who instructed him, and who then sent him out to be a witness. The light of Christ shines through. We see how God 
Bless him in Jesus. The light shines through that stained glass and the, the resin greens now fall on an empty pew. Their light calls to mind another meek saint, another God-dependent saint, Jim Martin. When I first came to Redeemer as your pastor straight out of seminary, Jim sat on the board of elders. His bluntness and directness learned through the years in the woods shaped his demeanor. But God and his word was the content of his thoughts and actions. Every day, Jim prayed that God would put someone in his way that he might share Jesus with, that the light of Christ might show through him. Some years ago, during one of my last visits with Jim as he was losing his battle with cancer, I caught a glimpse of the brightness of Christ in him. Pastor, he said, having cancer has been worth it. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Everything I've heard and seen about the scourge of the 21st century and the various treatment regimes connected with it are simply horrible and painful and dreadfully uncertain. I didn't say a thing, I just waited. Pretty soon he continued. Last week, I got to talk to the gal who hooks up my chemo about the love of Jesus. It was the second time I've talked to her, and she had some good questions. I could tell that she'd been thinking about what I said. I'm sure that the Holy Spirit was working on her. That makes six or eight nurses or technicians that I've talked with about Jesus because of cancer. Pretty good, huh? Absolutely, my friend. God-dependence produces God-sharing saints. And Jim was certainly one of them. And all saints today, the Beatitudes, help us to see the light of Christ shining on the pews, touching the lives of his redeemed. The high school student, struggling with the emotions of a young adult, cut off from her friends as she studies online, wondering, when will this end? The young father, out of work, struggling to make ends meet and losing hope. The widower, who goes through the day constantly running into reminders of how it once was. Nothing about them would set them apart in our world. No one is cutting stained glass to commemorate them. But the light of Christ falls on them. And he invites us to see the poor in spirit, the mourning, the God-dependent, the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. All of them blessed. All of them bathe in the light of Christ. On all saints day, the Beatitudes invite us to let the light of Christ shine into our dark places, in our lives, to drive out the darkness, and then to shine through us, out into a world that desperately needs to know the love of God in Christ Jesus. He is the light of the world. Let us be his light bearers. Amen. Now may the peace that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.